Hello and welcome to the Dorkomotive Podcast with Brian Loans. On this episode called Unstable, we're going to tell the deadly, explosive, and wild history of early automotive headlight manufacturing. Something that sounds so simple was a national calamity 15 times over. This is the Dorkomotive Podcast, and now it's time to get on with the story. This episode of the Dorkomotive Podcast is brought to you by Gear Vendors Overdrives. For decades, Gear Vendors has been producing the highest quality, highest horsepower handling overdrives on the market. Easily installed behind a variety of manual and automatic transmissions, a Gear Vendors Overdrive is a transformative piece of driveline technology that takes even the hardest core 3,000 horsepower street machines and turns them into highway cruisers. The drastic increase in drivability and fuel economy are only a couple of the benefits that a Gear Vendors Overdrive unit can offer you and your hot rod. Check them out at GearVendors.com. And remember, GearVendors is the only overdrive that's guaranteed even while racing. Visit GearVendors.com to learn more. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Dorkomotive Podcast. Brian Loans, your host here with a really interesting story, a story that I stumbled upon and then became obsessed with, as is normally how the show gets made. Um, so what we're going to tell the story of today is early headlights and specifically a company called Prestolite. And the brand of Prestolite is likely known by a lot of people out there if you're an automotive enthusiast. We're going to talk about the really the first decade or so of the existence of Prestolite and how they managed over the course of about a 10-year period to blow up 15 of their factories across the country in very spectacular fashion. We need to go into several different areas here. This story will be told, uh, obviously, from a historical perspective. we got to do a little chemistry here. Uh, we got to talk a little bit about kind of the, the technology of the day. And then we have to talk about all the different elements that went into these uh, various just catastrophes that, um, that surrounded the Prestolite Company but did not stop the Prestolite Company, nor did it even slow them down, really, over the course of a time frame that runs from 1907 to 1917s, so we're going to tell the majority of this story. But really, we have to go and talk about why Prestolite came to exist and how it came to exist. And the, the basis for me in investigating this story came, I was reading a book called Big Roads. Uh, it's a great uh, history of the, uh, inter, the interstate highway system in the United States. I, I recommend anybody who's into transportation pick that baby up and read it. But over the course of that book, I read a lot about a guy named Carl Fisher. And Carl Fisher, we're going to give a brief bio here. Carl Fisher is a guy that I eventually may end up doing an entire episode on because it turns out he led um, one of the most incredible lives, I would say, of the early 1900s and uh, had an indelible effect uh, and changed many things across the United States. But to start with, Carl Fisher um, was a, a bicycle dealer, became an incredibly massive bicycle dealer in Indianapolis uh, when that was a thing. He was a bicycle racer, and as so many did, he transitioned into cars, transitions into cars and becomes an automotive dealer. And back then, it was a much different scene than it is today as far as dealing cars. You didn't just have a Ford dealership or a Dodge dealership or a Marmon dealership. You had a car dealership, and you could sell pretty much whatever you wanted out of this thing. And Fisher's dealership was massive, and he promoted it doing all kinds of crazy stunts. If you follow me on Instagram, uh, which I recommend you do, at Brian Loans at Instagram, B-R-I-A-N-L-O-H-N-E-S, and you will see photos of him uh, attaching a car to a hot air balloon and flying it around in, like, you know, the 1900s. Um, he did all kind of, he pushed a car off the top of a building in Indianapolis and then drove it away. 
he was a master of publicity and a master of uh, of kind of driving his business forward. And he was a very wealthy man by the time we get to a very important part of our story, which is 1904. Another guy that is integral in this story, who plays a little bit of a quieter role than Carl Fisher does, is a guy named James Allison. And Allison, again, another of these just kind of maverick guys, these, these people that have grand ideas and they're able to execute on them, Allison and Fisher got along very well. They would partner on a lot of different things. They were involved in multiple businesses together. Uh, Allison famously would found um, a, a company that would uh, later on become Allison, as we know it, Allison Automatic Transmissions, a division of General Motors for many decades. They built turbine engines, um, you know, an incredible kind of industrial colossus. So in 1904, we have Allison and we have Fisher, and they're always looking for new businesses, new ideas, things to invest in. And then there's a third man we need to introduce into this conversation, a man named Percy Avery. Percy Avery was an older guy, and he was trying to sell an idea. Percy Avery had bought the rights to a French patent, and this French patent was a patent on how to uh, safely store under pressure acetylene gas. And the idea here for Avery was that he was going to transform the way that automobile headlights worked. And he was going to transform this by creating acetylene headlights. Now, this sounds insane. In the year 2022, this sounds completely bananas, that you were going to use pressurized acetylene to power the headlights of an automobile. That is insane. And you'll find out why it's insane as we tell this story. But in this synopsis, getting us to this 1904 meeting of Allison, of Fisher, and of Avery, we find out that this is kind of the perfect kind of trifecta of people to move this idea ahead. Avery had been chased out, laughed out, and run out of almost every other uh, meeting he had ever gone into. And he was basically broke. He spent all his money on this, on this patent, the rights to this patent. And we're going to go into exactly what this patent is in, in a few minutes. But he was down to kind of his last couple of, of, of bucks here, and he needed somebody to invest in his idea and believe in what he was trying to sell. So he sets up his demonstration. He shows Allison. He shows Fisher first, and Fisher was in awe. And then he Fisher calls up his buddy Allison and says, hey, you better get down here and look at this. They have another meeting. Allison sees what's going on. And Fisher and Allison agree to, uh, to effectively fund this idea, to fund this company. And they call the company the Concentrated Acetylene Company. And this was formed in 1904, and it is a very small operation. It is effectively Percy Avery and one other man working in the back of a bike shop. And they are in the most humble kind of conditions. This is how, you know, uh, if they talk about billion-dollar businesses, how, you know, companies like Microsoft started in Bill Gates's garage. Well, this is certainly not Microsoft, but when we find out what happens with Prestolite, the idea that this company would start in the back of a bicycle shop um, on kind of a whim of two very wealthy Indiana investors and the the hardcore belief of one older guy with a patent right that uh, they'd be able to turn it into something is pretty fantastic. So, we now need to take a bit of a pause here and go in a different direction. So I, I wanted you to understand what Presto Light was and what the, what the concept was, these acetylene headlights. We need to talk about why they needed acetylene headlights. We need to talk about what acetylene even is. And we need to talk about why this patent that Avery had was so uh, important for not only the 
the automobile side of things, but also for really um, everyday life and the legacy of all these things are, are kind of beyond and above what you would expect. Okay, so now that we have a basic understanding of what this company's layout is, it's time for us to explore what acetylene gas is, how it was discovered, how it's made, and kind of what the process is and what the process was to turn it into something useful for humanity. This is where things really begin to get interesting. So the story of acetylene really begins in the year 1836. That's when it's discovered in a French laboratory by a French uh, scientist, a chemist. And, you know, this uh, the late 1800s, late that time period was really a, a time of great discovery of all different things around the world. And acetylene was discovered by accident, as so many things are, in a laboratory environment. And it was discovered when uh, scientists are trying to kind of isolate some different uh, elements, if you will, some different parts. They were working with potassium, and they ended up uh, coming up with a, a carbide. Now, at the time, this was a potassium carbide, but they noticed when they combined it with water, it immediately released a gas, a gas that was highly flammable. And the problem really wasn't the fact that they were making it. The problem was that they didn't really know what it was and, and why it was useful. And the second thing was making carbides was very, very difficult because to make a carbide, uh, which we're going to talk about making calcium carbide, which is what um, acetylene has been primarily made with for you know well over 100 years now, requires an incredible amount of heat. And it, it requires really kind of a special process to make it. So acetylene gas is, is a very simple gas to make when you have the elements to create it. The only two things you need are... In this case, in the modern world, calcium carbide and water. As soon as those things touch each other, uh, acetylene gas is released in, in very rapid fashion. Now, acetylene gas in its, in its uh, pure state, if you will, is highly unstable. Very highly unstable. And that is something that is going to become a, a reoccurring theme here uh, in our discussion. When we talk about putting uh, acetylene into tanks... It is an ingenious way to stabilize the gas and to do it safely. It is the process of making the acetylene and then transferring it into the tank to start with is where the majority of our problems um, and problems on a grand scale will occur over the course of this episode. But let's talk a little bit about the history of acetylene. So uh, there's a document called The History of Acetylene, not a very adventuresome title, but it's written by a guy named Ralph O. Tribblett. And Tribblett is a guy who worked with acetylene really for his whole life. He uh, did a Bachelor of Science in Chemical Engineering out of Ohio State University. Um, he spent his his working career for many years developing uh, acetylene production methods, working with um, a company called the Lind Company, which is part of Union Carbide, a company you're going to hear more about over the course of this episode. And so when we look back, you know, 1836, the gas is discovered. And really when we get to 1890 is when things um, really pick up. So we're not going to waste a lot of time uh, between 1836 and 1890. The reason that 1890 is important is because it is in 1890 when it is discovered how to make calcium carbide in a large format. So typically, uh, this stuff was only made in labs in very small quantities. So, you know, this idea of even making acetylene gas in any sort of volume was kind of pie in the sky until somebody figured out how to really make a lot of of calcium chloride or carbide rather and so in 1892 a guy named J.T. Moorhead another guy named T.L. Wilson another guy named J.C. King 
were looking for a way to make aluminum. Um, this was and alu making aluminum is a very difficult process as well. Of course, it's not been simplified in the modern world. The process is the process. We just have better ways of doing it. But there is a style of furnace that you need to make aluminum, which you also need to make calcium carbide, which is called an electric arc furnace. The way an electric arc furnace works, very simply, is you pump just scads of electricity into two big kind of prongs or multiple prongs. Those become superheated, and anything you're trying to cook or melt is in this kind of cauldron. You put the top down in the cauldron, and these giant superheated rods, if you will, uh, cook everything in there to a a temperature of over 3,000 degrees. We're talking temperatures to create calcium carbide of about 3,600 degrees is necessary. And so the reason that these furnaces were um, starting to come into vogue in the late 1800s is because of the fact that there was finally enough electricity out there to actually do this. And uh, hydroelectric dams such as Niagara Falls and other places, once they had all this massive amounts of electricity being generated, uh, they were able to run these these furnaces, which require, as you can imagine, just incredible amounts of it. So the process of making aluminum, and what these guys tried to do is they, they tried to use the same style of process that's used uh, kind of in the steel-making um, business. So they would take the furnace, they put their bauxite or aluminum ore in there, and they would put two other things in there, in there with it, lime and coke, not Coca-Cola. Coke is purified coal, and coke is a very important uh, element in steel making. And when we understand what coke is, basically coal has all kinds of junk in it, right? It has tar in it and all kinds of stuff that if you were just to burn coal, you know, you get all the black smoke and it tends to gum things up. And, and these various different things that are in the coal uh, leach out as impurities. And, and sometimes you can actually see people that are trying to um, make a like a crucible, like a little forge or whatever at home, and they're burning coal, and you can oftentimes see it kind of gum things up and, and get weird. If you take coal and you cook it, you don't set the coal on fire, you bake it, and you bake out these imperfections and impurities, you now have what is known as coke. So the guys take the coke, they take the lime, they put all the stuff in the pot with the aluminum ore, they heat it up, and it, this did not really work. The only thing it gave them was calcium carbide, which they thought was a, a waste product. So in the course of disposing of this stuff to some degree, uh, they managed to get some of it in water. And when they got it in the water, they realized, man, there is a, a bunch of gas coming off this thing and off this entity, if you will, this combination, and that is acetylene gas. So the large-scale commercial manufacture of acetylene begins in the late 1800s which is kind of interesting and cool that it's kind of it's that old uh what could it be used for well it could be used for any number of things uh people knew that it burned very bright they knew that it burned very hot it actually burns with a temperature twice that of of propane it's a like second or third you know hottest natural flame we know today you combine it with oxygen you get a six thousand degree flame that you can cut stuff with and weld stuff with and everything else so these guys discover this, um, and carbide is becoming something that's being used in industrial applications as well, and there is a company in New York called Union Carbide. And so they're interested in, in this process, so they actually buy the financial interest of Moorhead and the other guys, and now we have what is will become a massive company. Still in business today, Union Carbide is a $2-plus billion a year you know, revenue generator. The downside of purified, and I'm talking 
unadulterated pure acetylene is that it is highly unstable. And so moving it is very, very dangerous. If you compress pure acetylene more than 29.4 PSI, it becomes uh, so unstable that it will explode if it is shocked in any way, if it is uh, dropped or kicked, and certainly if there's an open flame around it, forget about it. But the problem is uh, when you try to move this stuff, it is explosive and it's bad and it's really not that good. So the solution of this in the short term was that acetylene was made on site, meaning uh, there are you can find pictures of them. There are what's called acetylene generators that were that were built back then. And these acetylene generators were basically a big pot full of water. On top of it, you had a hopper full of your calcium carbide. The carbide would be um, dropped in, you know, at a at a measured rate. There'd be kind of a dial on the thing or whatnot to, to determine how much you wanted to put in there. And it would make acetylene that would then be sent to a cutting torch, sent to whatever anybody was using it for. So these portable acetylene generators were um, an interesting innovation. But people understood if you could actually bottle this stuff and carry it around rather than having to generate it with you, um, it would be a big deal. But the problem was, again, if we compress this stuff more than 29 PSI, uh, we have a, a big problem. The next major kind of innovation or usage of acetylene, especially in terms of lighting, came in the very early 1900. It was actually a guy named Frederick Baldwin patented the very first carbide lantern in the year 1900. And a carbide lantern is a miner's light. If you've ever seen back in the day, the, the old miners would have these little things strapped to their head, and it looked like a can with a forward-facing reflector and a flame in it. And those mining lamps were tiny little acetylene generators strapped to these guys' heads. And the reason it was good for mining was, one, the brightness of the flame was very good, and two, when you burn acetylene, it does not produce carbon monoxide. So when you don't have the carbon monoxide, the, the, the air quality in the mine is obviously terrible enough as it is, um, but you don't have the additional, these all these little lamps burning, creating even more carbon monoxide. So the way that a mining lamp works, or a, what, what is called a carbide lamp, is effectively an acetylene headlight. Okay, And so the way these worked was, it's about the size of a soda can, maybe a little bit bigger. You would unscrew the top off. You would put your calcium carbide in the bottom, and knowing the way mining used to work, you probably had to go buy it at the company store. The people that paid your paycheck, you'd also give the money back to buy stuff. So you'd buy the stuff, and you'd put it in the bottom. You'd put, let's say, less than a handful of it, and maybe a half a handful you'd put in the bottom of your, of your lamp. The top of the lamp, you would fill with water. And on top of the lamp, there would be a little dial. And depending on how far you swung the dial one way or the other, that would control the flow or drip, if you will, of water from the top of the can onto the calcium carbide, which would generate, you guessed it, acetylene. That generated acetylene would then head up into a little nozzle, and you would use a lighter or you'd use some sort of a sparking device to get that thing to light. And this was the way that miners worked for many, many years. They were very widely used in mining for decades. The downsides were the fact that they worked for about four hours, give or take the size of it, um, and then when it went out, and it worked for four hours depending on how you had it set. If you had the thing set at full burn, it probably went through a lot faster than that. If you had it set at a slow drip, it would last likely a little bit more than that. But when you're working a 10- or 12-hour shift in the mine, a couple times a day, you would all of a sudden be standing there in darkness if you didn't realize that your flame had been beginning to dim 
when the production of the acetylene was beginning to slow down because your calcium chloride or calcium carbide or your water was running low. But it was a um, it was certainly a good thing to have, and it was a, a boon for miners to have that. So the next thing that people did with this stuff is they actually lit their houses with it. And if you can imagine this, imagine a house that outside the house is your acetylene generator, this big pot, and on top you have your calcium chloride distrib- distribution unit. You would go out there, you would turn the thing on, meaning you'd fill your pot up, you would have your calcium car- carbide dripping in there, and this would be plumbed directly into your house, and it would be plumbed directly into all of the fixtures of lighting in your house. So when you got the gas flowing, you would simply walk up to each, each fixture with your sparking device, and you would light them. And you would have bright white acetylene light lighting your home. And again, um, this is a method of lighting that was obviously not very long-standing in developed areas. But in the countryside, especially in the United States, in the United States countryside, these, you know, it wasn't like everybody had it, but they were used for many, many years. Downsides of this system include, but are not uh, limited to, blowing your house up when you accidentally, you know, leave the thing running. You leave your house, and your house effectively begins to fill up with acetylene gas, and something happens and sparks, and your whole house turns into a bomb. Uh, there, there are many, many stories of houses being leveled by people that uh, you know you just forget. <laughs> the stuff is basically, um, the stuff is obviously invisible. It's gas, and if you let it run and and it fills a room, and a spark happens, you have a, an absolutely um, massive problem on your hands. So. You know, lighting with acetylene was really its primary use kind of back in the the earliest days of it. And again, this idea of being able to transport it is the problem. And this is where Avery's patent comes in. So Avery, the smart guy that he was, and and Avery, uh, well, he does not get the recognition of of Allison and Fisher in this whole process, definitely was the, the brains of the operation in terms of the idea and what he saw in the value of a patent that was created by two French scientists with the last name of Claude and Hess. What Claude and Hess discovered was that acetylene can be absorbed into acetone like a sponge. So liquid acetone, which is kind of nasty stuff in and unto itself, absorbs acetylene in incredible volumes, like multiple times its own volume of acetylene. Multiple times a volume of acetone can be effectively filled with acetylene and when you do that it stabilizes there is no more shock there is no more if we pressurize this thing over 30 psi it's going to blow up there is um, all of a sudden a method now of being able to take this gas that is having more industrial uses discovered by the day and move it around and, and make it portable and so Clyden has perfected this idea um, they start their own business over in France in the late 1800s, and they're making a fairly small volume a day of this stuff. And so in their tank, they have a cylinder. Inside the cylinder is acetone. Also, there is a porous mass in there. We're going to talk about that too. And so when you have, when you have just the acetylene and the acetone together, uh, it is still a, a level of hazard there, um, and it also kind of can can discharge unevenly. You don't really have the nice even flow that you'd want coming out of your cylinder when you only have the acetylene and you have the acetone in there. 
So they put a porous mass in there. Now, this porous mass can be made of, of any number of things. And over the years, uh, that porous mass has been made from asbestos, which is what we're going to talk about here a lot. The, the Prestolite tanks we're going to talk about were filled with acetone, acetylene, and asbestos. You want to talk about a trifecta of, of things that will uh, not do good things to you long term. But that was what they used. So the, the problem that Avery had in trying to sell his idea was that people didn't really understand this chemistry. And he was pretty early on this thing. Remember, this idea that, that you could store and move this stuff really had only happened in France in the late 1800s. And here, here was Avery in the very early 1900s meeting with auto manufacturers and telling them, hey, these, these, this is going to change headlights. This is going to make your car way better to drive at night. This is going to be a great system. But all people would hear is acetylene, and they'd say, no way, that stuff blows up. We don't want anything to do with it. This is far too dangerous. Fisher and Allison, on the other hand, were, were not afraid to take risks uh, or, as we'll find out, put other people at risk. And so they were all about this particular idea. Fast forward now to 1904. We've had the meeting. We've had Allison. We've had Fisher pay the money. We have Avery working in the back room with with him and just another guy making these, um, you know, very small batches, if you will, of this product. And lo and behold, they start to sell their headlight systems. And people are liking them. And the volume picks up. And in 1906, Avery leaves the company. Nobody really knows or has written about or has explained why Avery bailed out of the Prestolite company in 1906. And it should be noted, before 1906, it was still the concentrated acetylene company. When Avery left, that is when Allison and Fisher renamed the company to Prestolite. So Allison and Fisher see the, see the, the potential here now that they're actually manufacturing the stuff and now that they're selling some of it, they really understand that there is uh, plenty of of money to be made in this venture. And it's going to have to scale up and it's going to have to do a whole bunch of different things. But once Avery leaves the company, business takes off in a really kind of incredibly fast fashion. And part of the reason why is because of Fisher's ability to sell and to promote as well as his connections inside the auto industry. Nobody knew who Percy Avery was. So when he would go into his meetings and say, hey, buy my acetylene system for your your cars you offer it as an option or or even install it as original equipment they'd laugh him out of the room because who is this old guy trying to sell us this crazy idea of acetylene when carl fisher said the same thing people listened fisher had money fisher had success they knew that fisher was uh, a guy who didn't swing and miss very often and when somebody like fisher walks into your office and says hey here's a great way for all of us to make a bunch of money uh the rich guys that were in charge of these car companies started to take a lot of notice and so now we know a little bit about what acetylene is. We know the main players of the story. And now we need to understand the need for Prestolite acetylene headlights. I mean, it couldn't have been that bad, right? Oh, trust me, it was that bad. This episode of the Dorkomotive Podcast is brought to you by Gear Vendors Overdrives. For decades, Gear Vendors has been producing the highest quality, highest horsepower handling overdrives on the market. Easily installed behind a variety of manual and automatic transmissions, a Gear Vendors Overdrive is a transformative piece of driveline technology that takes even the hardest core 3,000 horsepower street machines and turns them into highway cruisers. The drastic increase in drivability and fuel economy are only a couple of the benefits that a Gear Vendors Overdrive unit can offer you and your hot rod. Check them out at GearVendors.com. And remember, GearVendors is the only overdrive that's guaranteed even while racing. 
Visit GearVendors.com to learn more. So it could be argued that every new business is a solution to a problem, whether we're talking about a service industry style business or we're talking about a product or a manufacturing style company, they're serving a need someone has. And the need that Prestolite was aiming to serve in the headlight market was, well, decent headlights. There was not a decent headlight on the market for a multitude of reasons. One, the electric uh, light bulb, uh, which certainly existed at this time, but it was not robust enough to handle cars jouncing down the road. Um, that and the fact that cars generated very little of their own electricity. Remember, these cars, most of them had a magneto. They did not have, for the most part, at this point in history, in the early 1900s, did not have a battery like charging system. There was no generator. There was no alternator. There was a magneto that made enough electricity to fire the spark plugs, but really past that, nothing. In the late 1800s, an electric car manufacturer debuted the original electric headlight, but again, made a very small volume and did not create a whole bunch of light. Uh, then it was obviously not strong enough. You know, roads during this time were horrendous, so they were bouncing around and, and it would break the filaments and it just wasn't a good solution. The next step forward there was kind of kerosene and oil-based lamps, and these lamps suffered many of the same problems that the electric light bulb did early, meaning that... The roads, again, horrendous roads, the oil and stuff's bouncing all over the place. They make very little light. Even at their, their brightest, they provided almost nothing in terms of any sort of forward light throw. And they were not easy to use. If you were out in the rain, they could be blown out. They could be washed out. And can you imagine, you know, the, the, the problem you're trying to solve here is basically to make a headlight that isn't going to get blown out by the wind. Uh, that is not seemingly a tall order. For the technology didn't exist then to, to make it a very easy solution. Hence the reason acetylene seemed as though it was going to be this kind of miracle product and a miracle kind of savior for this marketplace. The acetylene burned very bright. It was uh, obviously enhanced by reflectors inside the light fixture itself, and it provided effectively uh, 10 times plus the amount of light that some of these other headlights put out. We're talking headlights that had not 100, not 50, but like six to seven candle power. I'll say that again. Headlights at this time in history generated six to seven candle power of light. Now again, cars are not traveling at 100 miles an hour, nor are they even traveling at 50 miles an hour. Most of the time, cars are traveling at very low speeds, and you know, night driving was still very much a novelty. Because of the fact that the roads are so bad, and because of the fact there was so little directional finding, signage, any of that stuff... Uh, going out at night, unless you knew exactly where you were going and how you're going to get there, could be a little bit more of an adventure than people bargained for. So, you know, the, it's a chicken and egg. People didn't do a lot of night driving because there wasn't any good headlights. There wasn't any good headlights because people didn't do a lot of night driving. One of the things that Carl Fisher was involved in in his lifetime, it was essential in, was the development of better roads in the United States. He was one of the guys that championed the Lincoln Highway, which became the first transcontinental highway in the country, worked very hard to improve the road situation. Now, he did it for a multitude of reasons, one of which was his own gain. The better the roads, the more driving. The more driving, the more usage of headlights. The more usage of headlights, the more money he's going to make. And the more cars he can sell. And other businesses he could launch that he hadn't even thought of yet. So with Fisher always looking ahead in the bigger picture, these headlights were something that he saw not as a necessarily as a safety improvement in terms of people's driving, but he saw these as an improvement in terms of usage of cars. If you could give people the option to actually use something that was effective in the evening, 
they would start driving more and uh, that would have benefits for him on a business side and it would it would benefit uh, you know all the industries that he was really involved in so we have bad headlights and this solution for acetylene now starts to become a little bit more reasonable when we look at it in the context of 2022 it seems insane now that we kind of understand the major players involved especially in terms of the mechanics of how this is going to work it seems to make more sense an acetylene light is not going to be blown out by a breeze it's not going to be washed out by rain um, it's going to provide effectively multitudes more light than the available bulbs produced and it was something that seemingly was a very simple system you would have a tank you would have lines you would have an igniter you would ignite those you would open the tank you would ignite and then you would have light to drive down the road with and all of this goes back of course to Avery's patent on these tanks and we remember that Avery had left the company in 1906 for reasons at this point really known only to Avery I'm going to make some assumptions later on in the show but right now we just know that Avery has left that brings us to 1907 and this is really when the story takes flight in so many ways so let's talk a little bit about the specifics of the Prestolite system the specifics of the Prestolite bottles which were the crux of the whole business and the reason of course that Allison and Fisher were able to continue to do this despite Avery's leaving was simply because of the fact that Avery had sold them into the patent they weren't just business partners they actually had a piece of the patent so they were able to use it even though Avery had left and this would lead to a string of lawsuits uh, over the course of time as Avery would try to go into similar businesses as Prestolite you know trying to make his money independently of the other two wealthy guys in the 1907 time frame we open up a copy that everybody has laying around of course thankfully this one happened to be on the internet the 1907 cycle an automotive trade journal now this is a piece that was definitely placed in here by the people at Prestolite and what it talks about is the internals of a compressed gas tank so I'm gonna read this story to you because it it tells us everything we need to know about a Prestolite tank and what made it different what made it unique and what um, you know really how they kind of cashed in on this this French patent that Avery bought into and I quote while various compressed gas tanks have been described in these columns from time to time, no details of the interior construction and arrangement have heretofore been available, and we therefore take pleasure in publishing a complete description of the Prestolite tank made by the Prestolite Company of Indianapolis, Indiana, which has kindly furnished us with detailed data for this purpose. Prestolite gas tanks are seamless cylinders made of steel such as tensile strength that they would stand a pressure of 2,500 pounds per square inch if required. They are in reality a storage battery for gas and not, in any sense, empty cylinders filled with gas under pressure. Each tank is completely filled with asbestos wool to which additional chemically pure acetone, which is immediately absorbed by the asbestos. The acetone has the peculiar property of absorbing many volumes of acetylene gas for each degree of pressure added and to give back this gas when the pressure is released, without any deterioration of the contents of the cylinder. Under moderate pressure, the tank gives light for 40 to 70 hours with two and a half foot burners, according to the size of the tank. At one end of each tank is a supply valve at which the gas is turned on or off, and the pressure is regulated. At the opposite end of each tank, set as to be protected from all injury, is a pressure gauge which shows at all times how much gas is contained in the tank. At the point where the gauge is connected with the tank, there is a metal which would melt in the temperature of 200 degrees Fahrenheit and release the gas. 
As ordinary combustion does not commence until a temperature of 286 degrees Fahrenheit is reached, the gas would, in case of fire, be released and out of the tank long before there could be any danger of ignition. Acetylene gas will not explode at a temperature under 1400 degrees Fahrenheit. Thus, all danger from accidents is done away with. The gas in the tank is never condensed to a pressure exceeding one-tenth of what the walls of the tank are built to withstand. There are three things that will prevent the Prestolite tank from working perfectly. The first, the valve of the tank must be up when the feed pipes are connected. If the valve of the tank is lower on the lower side, the liquid in the tank which holds the gas will run into and clog the feed pipes or the burner. The flame will be yellow and the contents of the tank quickly exhausted. The second is leaky feed pipes. Although a certain amount of gas will reach the lamps, a leaky feed pipe will cause the lights to burn low, which will necessitate opening the valve more and more in order to keep the lights burning. Third, gas tanks should be invariably be recharged by the concerns possessing the required knowledge and experience. Now there's a section called recharging. Before recharging Prestolite tanks, each cylinder is first numbered, packed with asbestos wool, and weighed. The correct record of numbers and weights is kept and a copy is sent to each of the company's pumping stations. A certain amount of acetone is put into each cylinder and charged with acetylene gas. The cylinder is then packed in ice and left there for three hours. It is then taken out and the pressure added again, which adds an additional 10 cubic feet of gas into the cylinder, which is packed in ice a second and third time, after which it is ready for delivery. When a tank is empty and ready for recharge, it is necessary to weigh it in order to determine whether or not it contains the proper amount of acetone. If it is found to be below the required weight, sufficient acetone is put in the tank to bring the tank up to the necessary weight. Prestolite gas is made by the most modern and up-to-date process of generating acetylene gas. After generation, the gas is filtered until perfectly clean and pure, and then it is thoroughly dried and cooled before being compressed into tanks. It will be kept in those tanks for an indefinite period of time. The Prestolite Company are furnishing to their dealers at a nominal cost mile boards like the one shown here, which contain an advertisement of Prestolite the dealer's advertisement, and the number of miles the dealer is placed from the business. So this is neat. This is the company uh, kind of coming out and telling people what their technology is, why it's safe, and why they have nothing to worry about, and that they've eliminated all possibility of explosions, all possibilities of fire, and all possibilities of risk. To run back over a couple of points that this story made, we should talk about the fact that the tanks are filled to 250 PSI of acetylene, there's 40 cubic feet of acetylene in that tank when it is full. There's 4.5 pounds of acetone that's accepting those 40 cubic feet of acetylene, and the, the tank is stuffed with asbestos wool. The whole thing weighs about 25 to 30 pounds in terms of the tank. Acetylene is 14.4 cubic feet to the pound, and a full kind of tank load of it, of course, spread about 31 pounds as mentioned. And it's a seamless steel cylinder, so it's kind of a drawn steel tank that was then hand-stuffed. You know, one thing to mention is the fact that uh, cylinders with acetylene in them are filled in essentially the same way now. The only big difference is they're not stuffed with asbestos. There is multiple different types of media that's used inside these tanks. Agamassin is the most common one. And if you were ever to cut open a modern acetylene tank, and I do not want you to do that, nor would I suggest you do that, you can go to YouTube and see people that have. Agamassin is almost like a plastery kind of cement-like material. The whole tank is filled with it top to bottom. It's very porous, and basically the agamassin is poured into the tank. It is baked and hardened, and then the acetone is poured into the agamassin. It is 
that acetone is held in that agamassin, and then when the acetylene comes in, the acetone holds onto the acetylene. The very porous agamassin allows the acetylene to be released in a very uh, measured and even way from the acetone that it's um, being held by, and that is how the gas is released from the tank. So it is um, interesting that the media has changed over the years, whether it's asbestos or um, there was multiple different types of media that was used over the course of time, but right now it is agamassin, and it's been agamassin for many, many, many years. It's the industry standard for sure. So it's kind of interesting to think about the fact that, that you would get like 40 hours of, of illumination out of one of these tanks. And when you think about how infrequently people would drive at night, uh, that's a long time. And now this doesn't count the fact that if you forget to close the valve and the thing outgasses overnight, you've gotten one hour and you simply forgot to shut the tank off. The tanks would be mounted either on the running board of the car or on behind the rear bumper of the car. And then there would be copper lines running to the back of the headlights, which... There was two ways to start these things. One, if you were super, you know, zooty, you could remotely start them. Hence the name Presto Light. You could, in a Presto, in a, in a blink of an eye, and a snap of a finger, you could have light in your car. The most common way that these were lit was someone would go, crack the tank open, they would use a, a striker like you would light a torch with, and they would go up to the light fixture and strike over the light fixture. It would ignite. They'd close the glass enclosure in the front of it, and then you would adjust the height of the flame per the, the directions by Prestolite. You wanted that flame to be about three quarters of an inch tall. And so what you did was you cracked the valve open a little bit. You went and looked. If it was too much, you closed it some. If it wasn't enough, you opened it up a little bit further. But all in all, a very simple system of explosive gas on your running board. But hey, remember, they said they got nothing to worry about, that they've taken care of, of everything. There's no risk. You can just go driving down the road and not worry about it. And surprisingly, there's not that many stories of cars, you know, blowing up, catching on fire, having these type of problems with Prestolite. Not to say there aren't any, though. And we go to the Palladium Item newspaper of Richmond, Indiana, on May 24th of 1907. Front page story. Above the fold. The title. Party in an automobile has narrow escape from death in accident. Subtitle. Machine unruly and overturned, entirely ruined. Sub-subtitle. Mr. and Mrs. Guy Goshaw and Mr. and Mrs. Horace Scott came out of the affair most fortunately. Explosion followed outbreak of fire. The machine, a wane, was comparatively new, and the losses heavy, many attracted to the scene. And so here's what the story says. In an auto accident, Guy Goshaw and his wife, as well as Mr. and Mrs. Horace Scott, had a most miraculous escape from death Thursday night at about 10 o'clock three miles northwest of Richmond on the Williamsburg side. The auto in which they were riding turned completely over and down an embankment where a few seconds later it caught fire and the acetylene tank exploded, completely demolishing the car and burning it beyond all recognition. Mr. and Mrs. Goshaw and Mr. and Mrs. Scott were returning from Hagerstown where they had been visiting Thursday afternoon. It had not rained at that point, like it had in Richmond, and Mr. Goshaw, who was at the wheel, was sending his car along the road towards Richmond at a good rate, probably traveling 20 miles an hour. All had remarked in the excellent condition of the road about a mile from the place where the accident occurred, the rain having laid the dust. The machine was going down a small hill at a good rate of speed when it encountered an extremely muddy place. The machine immediately began to skid from one side of the road to another, and the brakes were applied immediately by Mr. Goshaw, but they were ineffective. 
When he saw that the machine was likely to overturn in the ditch, he immediately released the brakes and put on all steam and turned the car directly toward a fence, aiming to go through it, thinking that not that much damage would result by this method as if the car would have overturned. He had partially turned to the front wheels and was headed toward the fence when the rear wheels struck an abutment on a culvert, which overturned it, throwing it a distance of at least 10 feet down the road. Mr. and Mrs. Scott, who were both sitting on the left side of the machine, were thrown out, while both Mr. and Mrs. Goshock, who were sitting on the right side of the machine, on which it overturned, were both pinned under the car, which was on the wrong side up. Mrs. Goshock, or rather Goshaw, crawled through a space hardly one foot wide between the top of the tonneau door and the ground. Had she been a heavier woman, she would not have performed this feat, which was undoubtedly the saving of her life. Mr. Goshaw was caught by one leg, but Mr. Scott, by almost superhuman effort, lifted one side of the car and released him. Soon after Mr. Scott had released Mr. Goshaw, the gasoline which had spread over the entire car caught fire and burned briskly. Thinking of the possible danger of an explosion, Mr. Goshaw told the party to run to the side of the road, and they had gone about 100 feet when the the Prestolite tank let go with terrifying force, completely shattering the remains of the machine. The rescue of Mr. and Mrs. Goshaw had occurred about 15 seconds before the fire broke out. Had they remained in the wreckage 30 seconds longer, it is believed that they both would have been undoubtedly killed. The head of the Prestolite tank blew off when the explosion occurred and passed through the fender of the car, over the car, and over the spot where Mrs. Goshaw had been lying. The explosion was heard for more than a mile and awoke several farmers who later arrived upon the scene. After arriving in the city through the kindness of one of the farmers, Elmer McConaughey was notified of the accident, and he went to the scene taking Glenn Whitesall, who remained at the site all night. Whitesall noticed a large hole in the road embankment and dug into it about five feet and found the Prestolite can solidly embedded in the hard embankment. The head of the car was found about a mile away from the scene of the accident. Mr. Goshaw was the only one of the party who was injured by any extent, and he is but slightly bruised. The entire party is receiving the congratulations of their friends on having had such a lucky escape from death. Many Richmond autoists went to the scene of the accident. Mr. Goshaw, but a few weeks ago, purchased his machine, a Wayne, and the loss will be in the neighborhood of $2,500, although neither Mr. and Mrs. Goshaw are worrying over the loss of the auto, and they're thankful that they've escaped with their lives. The machine was partly insured. So that is a harrowing story, and it does, um, you know, shed a little bit of doubt on the initial claims of Prestolite that, hey, these tanks, uh, nothing happens to these tanks. Everything's fine. You know, hey, uh, what do you, we got the safety valve on it, so if there's a fire, the little valve melts, and, and then the gas comes out, which isn't, you want the gas to vent out of the tank, obviously, so you don't have a massive explosion. But at the same time, this, this kind of fallacy of if there's a fire that is hot enough to release that particular metal, to melt that metal plug, and then send the gas into the open air, one would assume that that fire would be close enough to the bottle that it would then catch and likely cause some sort of a, a real conflagration. But, hey, what do I know? Um, so that, that was just kind of a an example of what could go wrong. As I mentioned, the idea that these cars would be blowing up and catching fire and crashing all over the place uh, with grave consequences, actually, I was shocked at the number of stories I didn't find as I was combing through old newspapers, I fully expected to, to read hundreds of accounts of cars exploding, of people being burned, of bottles blowing up, of, of every possible horrendous thing that could happen with this, this uh, you know, giant can of uh, acetylene strapped to your running board unprotected, or worse yet, I think, behind the rear bumper where it could be compromised in a, in a very s- kind of small accident. And uh, that just never happened. 
So that was a kind of a happy surprise as I was doing the research for this show. It should be mentioned that the the growth and popularity of Prestolite is, especially in this 1907 time frame, is where the big problems begin for the company. And so in 1907, it was $27.50 to have a complete Prestolite system installed on your car. If you had a car without headlights of any sort, you could go to a Prestolite garage, you know, certified installer, and they would install the lights fixtures, they would install the lines and install the tank for $27.50, which is equivalent of about $825 or $830 in today's money. That is not a small expenditure. The, the genius of what Fisher and Allison did, though, was to get the OE manufacturers on board. So if you can believe it, from about 1907 through 1912 or so, Prestolite headlamps were basically the industry standard, and they were all buying the stuff from Prestolite, and these guys, uh, to a degree, couldn't even make it fast enough. And I don't just mean the acetylene. I mean, they had to make everything. Prestolite also manufactured the fixtures and everything else that went with the system. So when they were able to get this OE business, this original equipment manufacturer business, companies like Packard and, and Moon, and, and you know we can go through this list of, of all these automobile manufacturers at that time in history, um, they were wanting these and wanting them in volume to, to sell to their customers. They would obviously get a deal because they bought them in volume. They would in turn sell it as an option to their customers and make a couple of bucks on top of the on top of the um, car that they were already selling. So it was a win-win for everybody. And the big windfall for Prestolite was in the refill business. That's where they were going to make their money. Yes, they made money selling the systems to the OEs. Yes, they made money selling systems to people who were wanted them installed on their particular car. But the real money was in the refill. Once you had made the tank, that tank could be reused dozens, if not hundreds of times, by different customers. And those customers would come into your Prestolite dealership, and, and these things were everywhere. Public parking garages had Prestolite centers, gas stations. I mean, you name it, they were selling this stuff everywhere. And when your Prestolite can ran out, you simply went to a place that sold Prestolite cans, and you did an exchange. And instead of your $27.50 you know, big spend, when you bought your car or you bought the system, now it's just a couple of bucks to get a fresh full tank swapped out by your, you know, friendly certified Prestolite man. You heard me quoting, in quoting that story, you heard me talk about the fact that the tank should only be filled by the right people and you should only use a Prestolite tank. Now, obviously, it's in their business interest to tell people not to buy any of the competing products and certainly not to, not to fill that thing up with, you know, the not pure, you know, Prestolite acetylene. That was just kind of a business pitch. Honestly, acetylene is acetylene, whether Prestolite makes it or your grandmother makes it. It's the same gas. Um, the quality of the tanks, they would always, they would spend a lot of time in their advertising impugning uh, any sort of competition, that the quality of their tanks was faulty, and that you know by using somebody else's tank, you were you know, putting yourself and everybody you love in danger. And uh, it was simply, you know, it was a lot of scaremongering, scaremongering, I should say, by them. It was a way to sell and a way to capitalize on what they saw and kind of understood as an ignorant public when it came to this technology. As simple as it seems today, you know, a lot of people back then, it was kind of voodoo magic that how this whole thing was working, and they didn't know the difference. So when you can convince somebody that your magical gas is better than Joe's magical gas, you, you just kind of spend any time you can to convince them of doing that. As I mentioned, the cars were not exploding. 
The cars were not catching on fire. The cars were not causing grave calamities. That would be the factories. August of 1907 marked a very seminal moment in the history of the Prestolite Company because it was in August of 1907 when the very first time a newspaper was opened up and on the front page of that newspaper was photographs and was coverage of a Prestolite filling generating station exploding. This one happened to be in Indianapolis. By the time we get done telling this story, and I'm not going to go through every single one of these in incredible detail, but by the time we get done telling this story, we're going to talk about 15 different Prestolite plants exploding over the course of 1907 and 1917. Bayonne, New Jersey, Elkton, Maryland, Omaha, Nebraska, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, two in Minnesota, four explosions in Indianapolis, Kansas City, Cincinnati, two in Iowa, Long Island, New York, Cleveland, Ohio, and the list goes on and on and on. But we have to start at the beginning of the explosions, and this is the meat of the story. Breathless newspaper reporting from the front page of the Indianapolis Star, August 17th, 1907. Headline, there are three hurt and a settling blow-up. Accompanying this story are photos of buildings ablaze, of smoke everywhere, of holes in other buildings. Subtitle, two women and one man injured in $25,000 plant explosion at Prestolite plant. Subtitle, firemen's work perilous. Fight flames while in danger from debris hurled by exploding tanks. So this plant exploded, and this plant was in the middle of Indianapolis. It wasn't on the outskirts, it wasn't on the outside, it was in a, a very tightly packed urban neighborhood with a lot of small you know, buildings of various sizes. So it was a building that was a former uh, veterinarian, like a, a big-time kind of veterinarian's office. The second and third floors housed a veterinarian-style college that was up there, so people used to go and kind of get educated there, but the place had closed and Prestolite had had bought their way in there and this was really their first big factory so it explodes nobody is killed which is astounding and that is not something that we're going to say very often from this point forward but nobody died in this massive plant failure and I quote from the Indianapolis Star three persons are slightly injured and the loss of $25,000 was entailed at the plant of the Prestolite company at Pearl and New Jersey streets yesterday when a fire or an explosion on the first floor of the plant set off 200 or 300 steel tanks that had been charged with acetylene gas. That no one was killed is a marvel to the police and firemen who were on the scene a few minutes after the fire broke out, and by the time officers arrived, the terrific explosions were following in such quick succession that the reports were like a continuous roar, and jagged pieces of steel were flying in all directions. It was practically impossible to obtain exact information as to the cause of the fire, the loss or the injuries to the employees. Almost without exception, those who had been in charge of the plant either refused absolutely to impart information or pleaded ignorance as to the details when it seemed certain that they must have known something. Some of them even declared that they had forgotten their own names and one misstated his name seemingly on purpose. Yeah, this is where it gets shady and it will continue to be shady going forward. Frank Sweet, who was in charge of the plan in the absence of Carl Fisher at the head of the, the concern, said it was a loss to the company would amount to about $15,000 as near he could estimate it. 
the Frank Frederick Ostermeyer estate was damaged about $10,000. Officers of the company said that they did not believe there were any insurance on the company and that the unusual hazard of this business made the rates practically prohibitive to insure an acetylene generation plant. The fire started on the first floor near a machine by which the gas was compressed and forced into the small steel tanks, which are used mostly on automobiles for lighting purposes. Claude Hess, one of the employees, stated that the first blaze he saw, he was near the place where it started, and it was in the neighborhood of a pipe leading from the compressing machine to the tank that was being filled. It was supposed that this was a tube or the tank leaked. John Lucky, who proved to be lucky to get out with his life, stood near the machine when he was injured. He said that after the fire started, he crawled to the place that he might turn the electricity off and thus stop the motor that drove the compressing machine. He was injured on this mission. So let's stop there for a second. This guy, John Lucky, knowing what was surrounding him, knowing what he was doing, knowing what risk he was under, basically crawled through a fire to unplug the compressor and to get it to stop because it was pumping acetylene into an already horrendous situation. Two women were injured, and they were injured trying to get down the fire escape as they were working on the third floor. A man was injured when he tried to catch one of the women coming off the fire escape. But at the end of the day, there was no real, incredibly, no real serious injury. There was a time when the firemen went into the building after the fact. They thought they had everything out. They went up to the second floor where there was a bunch of tanks being stored, and they started to explode. And people thought the firemen might have been killed. They got very nervous. And all of a sudden, one of the firemen stuck his head out the window and smiled at the people on the ground. And they kind of cheered for him. And and he went off and, and continued his work after those explosions. So there is a sub story in, in this particular story. And it's about John Lucky, the guy who unplugged the tank. So here is uh, John Lucky's account of being in there. John Lucky's injuries at the Prestolite fire yesterday were due to his efforts to stop the compressing machine and thus to shut off the flow of gas following the instant where the first floor of the plant seemed to be enveloped in flame. It all, it all happened so quickly that Lucky, when he was running for the engine, hardly knew afterward that it, what had transpired. He said that his first thought was to check the escape of gas by shutting down the motor which drove the machinery. He made a rush for the switch, fell over a can of gas, and while his leg was bruised, his hand was cut, and his knee was sprained by the fall, he still managed to crawl to the switch to stop the electricity. Then, scrambling to his feet, the man escaped before the exploding of the highly charged tanks began. Claude Hess, who believed that the fire may have started from a leak in a gas pipe, was working under Lucky, learning the business for the purpose of taking a similar place at one of the company's branch plants at New York. Guessing Claude Hess might have made a bit of a... Um, how should we say, career change after living through this. As it was, there was no fire protection in the building. There was, of course, nothing to protect the workers, nothing to protect anybody. The fact that nobody died uh, in this is just, again, an incredible, incredible turn of events. And so the other thing to think about in this fire, and this is something that will come up over and over again, is what do we use to put out a fire? Water. What does this building, this generator plant of Prestolite contain? A massive amount of calcium carbide. What have we talked about this whole time? When calcium carbide contacts water, what is produced? Acetylene gas. Subtitle of the story. Big tank kept cool. Firemen protect great receptacle and prevent serious explosion. 
A stream of water that was played for an hour on the great retaining tank of acetylene at the Prestolite fire yesterday was all that prevented the entire building from being blown into smithereens, and the fact that this stream was started on the big tank early probably saved the buildings in the neighborhood of the plant. Soon after the first of the firemen achieved arrived, the chiefs and captains in charge of the men led to this tank, and a stream was started to keep it cool. The tank, several feet in diameter, contained enough of the gas to tear the building to pieces, the firemen were informed. And so as they're, they're, you know, spraying this building with water, trying to put the fire out, the one miraculous, or I guess the 100th miraculous thing, is the fact that the tanks where the calcium carbide was stored were waterproof. And if they had not been waterproof, they would have the firemen would have unwittingly caused an incredibly massive release of acetylene. So they would have produced acetylene in a fire that they were trying to put out that was being fueled by acetylene, which would have likely then allowed the massive holding tank to explode, which would have then, as the story says, leveled the neighborhood. That was pretty bad. That is a pretty bad scene in August of nineteen oh seven. And it was a scene that, again, is going to start playing out with a, an incredible amount of frequency here, especially in the Indianapolis area. It doesn't take long because we go to December 2nd of 1907. And where are we? Well, we're right back in Indianapolis again. Not only that, we're right back at the same place as the Prestolite plant, which had blown up in August, has blown up again. Indianapolis Star... December 21st, 1907, headline, Prestolite Plant, Let's Go Again. Employee terribly burned, dies after suffering the night at the hospital. Men run through flames. State factory inspector investigates second similar disaster within a year. Now, instead of a, you know, huge workup here, this is one column, one column on the front page of the news, and... I don't know really why this story didn't get as much play as the other one did. I mean, there are some photos on the front page of this newspaper as well. But this was not a blazing headline. It was just, oh, well, the, the same plant blew up again. And a man named Elmer Jessup uh, died as a result of this situation. And he was burned incredibly bad. He was able to get to uh, a kind of run out of the building completely engulfed in flames. And suffered an incredibly painful night of the uh of uh, incredibly painful night of suffering at the hospital you know they interviewed the doctor at some point after this the doctor said oh he doesn't have a chance you know the, the doctor just straight up told the newspaper no this guy doesn't have a chance and this is when he was still alive hopefully they didn't conduct that interview in the hospital bed or in the hospital uh, room where he was this the coverage of the fire you know obviously went uh beyond the Indianapolis Star it went to every other newspaper as well and the interesting thing about this is that it begins a movement of people in Indianapolis that say uh, maybe this isn't the best idea maybe we shouldn't have this factory making this stuff um, in the middle of our city and the other thing that it does now that's the second time uh, that this has happened it begins to develop a pattern where these are never solved. These explosions are absolutely never definitively solved. Three days later, on December 24th, 1907, there's a story in the Indianapolis News, the headline of it, Friction and Polishing, Cause of the Explosion. 
Dr. Richard Poole, assistant police surgeon today, explained that the cause of the explosions and fire at the Presta Light plant last week, none of the witnesses called by the coroner was able to explain the cause, although it was thought that the accident resulted from a spark from the buffing machine and a gas leak. But Dr. Poole says not. He says that when Elmer Jessup, the employee of the factory who died as a result of his injury shortly after the accident, was lying in a neighboring drugstore waiting for the ambulance, he told him that he was polishing one of the little gas tanks on the buffing machine and that it got too hot from the friction and exploded in his hands. Dr. Poole says this is borne out by the fact that Jessup's hands were badly lacerated. So Jessup was polishing a full acetylene tank on some sort of a frictional buffing wheel. Um, yeah, that, not a great idea, uh, but also likely not the cause to start an entire plant to blow up. And, you know, I, you can't accuse people of being paid off or bought off, but the fact that they're going to blame the dead guy, um, you know, that's kind of a red flag right there. Who do you blame? The guy that can't defend himself or say anything. Again, this pattern emerges where none of the people that work in the factory say anything, they will give fake names. They will not give any information. They will absolutely not speak to any sort of media per the instructions of their leadership of this company. And you can understand the fact that the neighborhood get um, got real antsy after this. And there's a story on December 25th of 1907 from the Indianapolis News that reads as follows. Property owners fear Prestolite plant do not wish establishment in East South Street and they protest to the safety board. A delegation of a dozen or so property owners and the residents of East Cell Street near the new Prestolite plant, now building in the vicinity of St. Vincent's Hospital, appeared before the Board of Public Safety yesterday to protest the completion and occupation of this plant. The second fire of the Prestolite company last Friday in its old plant on Southeast Street has thrown those living in the vicinity of the new plant into a panic, which has not been allayed by the insurances of the building's safe construction. Members of the committee, which were headed by Emil Dietz and John R. Welsh, the latter representing St. Vincent's Hospital, were unable to obtain any satisfaction from members of the safety board and from William Schorpenhorst, whom they talked particularly when they said that the board might have to be taking steps to prevent the construction of a building on East Street. Mayor Bookwalter, who was at the board's meeting, joined with the members of the board saying that the city could do nothing to prevent the establishment of the Prestolite plant in its new building, as things now stood. He told the committee of the movement to pass an ordinance that would compel the plant to be moved outside the city limits and then encourage its members to believe that prospects are excellent for the passage of that ordinance, saying that if the council would give him a, give him a law, he would see to it that the plant was not permitted to operate in the city. The management of St. Vincent's Hospital is earnestly backing the project to prevent the operation of Prestolite in its new plant. Although the South Street Fire Engine House is between the new Prestolite building and the hospital, friends of the latter institution insist that a repetition of the fire experiences which the company has had at its old location might create a disastrous panic among inmates of the hospital, even if there were no real danger to the hospital, of which they're not so sure. Many of those opposing the establishment of the new Prestolite company and its new plant recognize that to drive the plant out of the city after the investment which the company has made in its new building might work a hardship, but they say that the Board of Safety and the city building inspector should not have encouraged the company to go ahead and make an investment where they realized the plant was fully endangering others. So, they are moving from the plant that just blew up to a new plant plant that sits between a firehouse and a hospital. You know how this ends? Not well.
And so now the company has two explosions under its belt in a very short amount of time, June and then uh, the end of the year in December of 1907. It should be mentioned that John Lucky, the guy that unplugged the machine during the first explosion and likely saved a lot of people's lives, was also involved in the second explosion. And he was also a lifesaver in that one as well, doing effectively the same thing, shutting down the compressing unit machinery, the generator machinery, and then running for his life out of the plant. Um, In several news stories, he's quoted as saying that he's going to find a new job, having lived through that twice. Likely was not making a huge amount of money there either. And that was the uh, that was the name of the game. Neither of those explosions were ever 100 percent sussed out as to why. And before we go forward, I want to mention a couple of things. One is, um, you know, clearly the influence that Carl Fisher and Allison had on Indianapolis is the reason why that none of this is was a bigger deal for them personally. And it's only going to get worse from here. And, and it makes it makes for a tough telling of the story because, you know, Carl Fisher is, is regarded by so many people as a great figure and he did a lot of great things in this situation. He clearly did not have the public's um, best interest in mind, nor did he have his employees best interest in mind, nor anybody else's. Why were these explosions happening? You may be wondering that what is causing them to happen. And if you remember from the top of the show, we talked about how acetylene gas is highly highly unstable when it is in its pure state it only becomes stable when it gets absorbed into the acetone inside one of these tanks so we can only surmise that these explosions are happening in the transfer process right there's no other real place for it to happen it wouldn't be happening in the generation process because there's nothing to cause the gas to ignite specifically as it's as it's just kind of forming in the the main tank or the main generator it's during this compression and pumping action that is uh, likely causing these explosions. And it could be one of a million different things. We mentioned in its natural, unadulterated, pure state, if you compress this stuff more than 29.4 PSI, it's going to blow up. So if you're running some sort of wonky old you know, 1907-era compressing unit, is it possible that the, that the level of pressure that it's generating is, is not the most stable? Is it, par- is it possible that in whatever holding tank this is coming out of that there's pressure fluctuations that could be causing stuff like this? Obviously, leaking plumbing. Um, sure, there are people smoking on the job, even though they're in a plant full of acetone, asbestos, and um, and acetylene. I mean, I might be smoking on the job if I worked in that plant. You know what I mean? So there's probably people smoking. There's probably weird pressure stuff going on. And God only knows what else as far as things leaking and things that are kind of bodged together. So I wish I could give you definitive reasons for these explosions, but at this point, there really aren't any. And the company was, um, you know, ninja level in its ability to make its own employees clam up. I mean, they gave the papers absolutely nothing. So we move on now to June of 1908. In that plant that we talked about in the last segment of the show, they moved the plant, got it out of that neighborhood to a new neighborhood, right next to a hospital and a fire station. And in June of 1908, that plant blows sky high. Incredibly killing no one. The one thing these guys have an act for is wrecking their plants and killing no one. So we go now to the newspaper reporting of the day. Indianapolis Star, June 7th, 1908 front page, I mean really most of the whole front page. City jolted again by Prestolite. Terrific explosions caused widespread injury and damage to adjoining properties 
Now counsel will stop at St. Vincent's Hospital and fire engine house badly damaged and hundreds have been terrorized. And there was a long list of people injured in this thing, about a dozen or more reported by the newspaper. I'll read you the first section of the story. For the third time within a year, the charging plant of a Prestolite company was wrecked by a series racked, I should say, by a series of explosions yesterday. Many persons were injured, but none fatally. St. Vincent's Hospital was damaged, the Cell Street engine house was practically wrecked, and hundreds of window panes were shattered for squares around. The explosions yesterday were more terrific than the explosions accompanying either of the former accidents at the new location of plant of 211 East Street, less than 100 feet from St. Vincent's Hospital. Made yesterday made yesterday's disaster by far the worst of the three that have occurred since the plant was established here. The company will not be permitted to continue making gas to charge automobile gas tanks at this plant hereafter, and it's very probable that an ordinance will be passed in the city council forbidding the operation of any portion of the plant within the city limits. A special meeting of the city council has been called for Monday night for the passage of such a measure. The story ends by saying the injured came to grief in various ways, and one man, a paper hanger, was working in the yard next door and a piece of brick struck him on the head. Another man was slightly injured and struck by flying glass, and yet more people were injured by flying boards. There were people leaping out of second floor windows, I mean, damage to all these different buildings, including the, the firehouse. One of the giant holding tanks in the plant exploded with such force that it blew up through the roof of the plant flew through the air and went through the roof of the firehouse and it trapped the firemen inside their firehouse and caused effectively, it totaled the place. Absolutely totaled the place. And the hospital, a big section of the roof got blown off. There was a bunch of people in the hospital that was, in my understanding, was some sort of a kind of a mental hospital type of place that were all freaked out and people running around like crazy. The Cell Street engine house damage will likely be given up by the city. The Cell Street engine house next door to the Prestolite plant will likely be abandoned by the city. For a long time, Chief Coots of the Fire Department has urged the consolidation of his house and a house located on Virginia Avenue nearby. This will probably be done and arrangements may go forward this week. The engine house was badly damaged. The walls were sprung. A part of the roof almost fell in and a large part of the steel, a large part of steel crashed straight through the gable. A part of the windows were blown out. Members of the fire company occupying the old building wondered at their escape. All of them were knocked over and picked themselves up only to be knocked over again by a second explosion. The four horses in the house had a brief vacation. The concussion was so great that it tore the locks from the doors. The doors flew back and the horses galloped onto the street. They were stopped a block away and were returned. Again, you, you have this hospital that's, that's halfway wrecked. And you never have anybody from the company making a statement. Fisher never says anything. He never says, oh man... Super sorry, guys, that we keep blowing up your city. Our bad. Uh, he never says anything. Nobody says anything. And then we go to the next day, June 8, 1908, Indianapolis News. Title of the story, Prestolite People in More Humble Mood. Property Owners Determined on Exclusion. And so this is where the neighborhood reels up and they say enough is enough. They had the special meeting of the city council. The property owners from all over that part of the city were at the meeting. They were up in arms. They were demanding that the, the, the city council make a law, make a bylaw, that you cannot manufacture explosive gas or explosives in the city. And one by one, you know, they stood up and argued their case. Uh, they, you know, you don't really have to argue the case. Just, just go outside and look, at, and the place is all blown to smithereens. 
And so the, the, the company sent a lawyer there and the company was like, Hey, you know, um, these things happen. Uh, we pretty much think that we're going to be okay. You know, we're going to do a better job next time. So we don't have any more of these issues and, and everything should be fine. Nobody was buying that. Of course, um, the, the company made a, you know, basic agreement. Hey, you know, we'll do whatever you guys want, but we know that we can, uh, uh we can make this safer and be okay. There was a council member that, that stood up and spoke about the dangers of acetylene gas and how it's uh, dangerous when it's mixed with air and how it blows up. And, you know, it, none of this is a big surprise, right? You blow up a, a plant in the middle of a city, people are going to get angry and try to throw you out. What the surprise is, is that they don't get thrown out. The city does nothing. And so there's a story entitled, No Final Action on Prestolite, Council in Special Session, Having Measures Introduced and Referred to Committee, Effort to Suspend Rules. I mean, they didn't do anything. So what does that mean? You know, what, you know exactly what it means. After they had the meeting, I'm sure there was some sort of a conference clandestinely between the council, the company, and whoever else. They didn't throw them out. Not only did they not throw them out, they didn't even tell them to stop. They they didn't do anything. And ignoring the, the residents, despite the fact that they continued to fight and fight and fight, they kept making this a big issue, they kept complaining, and nothing ever happened. They were allowed to to kind of carry right on with, with exactly what they were doing. So the June of 1908 explosion was, you know, the biggest and baddest one of that era, of the of the big three, let's call them, the first three, um, that was the worst one. Despite the fact that no one was outwardly killed, the amount of damage that was done, especially the fact that, you know, it was a hospital involved, a fire station, all that type of stuff. 1909 would be a big year for Carl Fisher because it was in 1909 that Carl Fisher and a handful of partners opened up the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. And even the opening of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway was an affair that was not exactly the cleanest of all cleans. Um, there were multiple people killed over the course of the opening race weekend. Ultimately, why the place became the Brickyard was because they had to find a better way to pave it. After the first weekend of racing, um, where, where people were kind of dying every day of, of crazy crashes and a very rutted, um, kind of chewed up racing surface, the bricks were determined to be the, the best way, the safest way to, to move forward. That's why the place was paved in bricks. But Fisher loved cars and he loved racing, and, and the people in Indianapolis certainly did as well. They came out in droves. Uh, unfortunately, they got to see um, not just racing, they got to see what was very common in racing back then, which was... Uh, a multitude or a number, I should say, of, of fatal accidents. Um, you know, headlines like throng sees necks and speed marks broken. You know, these, <laughs> I mean, it's a very interesting time to live, right? It's a very interesting time. It's uh, people are just straight ahead with everything. No more explosions in 1908. No explosions in 1909. But Prestolite was not quite out of the headlines yet company was expanding rapidly and they needed more and more factories more and more generating plants around the country they wanted to open one in los angeles the los angeles times december 21st 1909 headline protest against factory residents near lacey and 26th street have filed a protest with the council against the maintenance of the acetylene gas manufacturing plant of the Prestolite company at number 2664 lacey street 
This is a new institution which makes gas tanks for automobiles and is a branch of the parent factory in Indianapolis. The petitioners say that the presence of so much calcium carbide is a menace to the neighborhood and that at Indianapolis, the company's factory has been wrecked by explosions three times with loss of life. And of course, they're right. And I think what's so interesting is in this era of no internet, in this era of no immediate mass communication, uh, these people understood exactly what was coming into the neighborhood and they wanted nothing to do with it. Um, as is the case in Indianapolis, their, um, their fears were not addressed. The plant opened up. And it didn't explode yet. Which brings us now to 1911. And it brings us right back to where we were in 1908. That building by St. Vincent's Hospital and what used to be a fire station was under construction to be expanded. Yes, it not only was still in operation, not only still filling bottles, not only against the protest of effectively everybody that actually lived by the building was still in operation, it was expanding. They were pouring concrete. It was in the middle of the wintertime. It's December. Very cold, of course. Indianapolis News reporting the date being December 6th, 1911. The headline, Three Killed, Many Hurt, and Building Collapse. What had happened here was there was cement that was poured, set into forms, and apparently, you know, the investigation of a construction accident is a lot different than the investigation of a gas explosion because this investigation revealed the fact that the contractors basically trying to stay on schedule or maybe a little ahead of schedule uh, removed the forms from the concrete far too early. And the building, the concrete was not set up. It did not have the structural integrity to stand on its own without those forms to kind of hold it in place. And because of the fact that it was very cold, the concrete was curing slower than it would have because of the cold weather. Somebody made an executive decision that turned out to be deadly. Initially claimed that three people died, and it got worse than that. Eight people ended up being killed in this building collapse, which was far and away the worst um, of the Prestolite kind of disasters. And it didn't have anything to do with a gas generator. It didn't have anything to do with acetylene. It had everything to do with a company that, um, again, the scruples level was uh, scruples level is fairly low here. Title, Indianapolis News, December 7th, 1911. This the evening edition of the paper. Wreck of building cost eight lives. Seven bodies taken from Prestolite ruins and one of one of 20 injured is dead. Rescuers worked 14 hours to dig people out of the rubble. The role of the dead taken from the ruins of the Prestolite building in, on Hammond Street, which collapsed yesterday afternoon, was swelled to eight this morning when the body of John Elvert, a laborer, was removed by workmen who had toiled in the debris through the, through the entire night, and Mike Newkirk, steam fitter, died at St. Vincent's Hospital from his injuries. It was announced that all the workmen whose names were on the time books of the contracting company had been accounted for. Estimates by foreman gangs placing the number of men in the building at the time of the collapse at 45 or 50. Of these, eight were killed. Two were injured seriously, and 17 others were more or less injured painfully in many cases. The bodies of Fred Asher, Henry James, and M.V. Headley were recovered in the afternoon immediately after the accident. Before A.H. Dixon, living was dug from the beneath the tons of crumbled concrete cables, splintered wood, and fragments of debris. Dixon's relief after a sensational effort by firemen and laborers, during which whiskey and other stimulants were, were given to the imprisoned man through a rubber tube, took place at about 4.30. He was taken to St. Vincent's Hospital in a delirious condition 
Yeah, he was drunk, guys. He, he lived. Thank God this guy lived, but he was loaded. Uh, whiskey and other stimulants given in him through a tube. And, and trust me, uh, you'd be drinking too. Uh, you know, you're trapped in there, and, and it's the middle of the wintertime. They're trying to dig you out. It's a, just a total disaster, and they're giving you whiskey in a tube because that's what you did in 1911 when someone was trapped in a building. You got him a little tipsy. This uh, this did not go unpunished, and, you know, the the idea that this is somebody's fault is kind of a new theme to this story because everything else was faultless. A company that refused to give a reason for the explosion, a company that refused to name names, a company that refused to give their own name, everybody would just kind of shrug their shoulders and walk off, but that was not the case here. The Rushville Republican of Rushville, Indiana, December 11th, 1911, report as follows, building contractors arrested. Because they proceeded with the enlargement of the Prestolite building without previously obtaining a building permit, Edward Wolf and Charles Ewing, contractors who were employed to construct the building which collapsed last Wednesday, carrying nine workmen to their death, have been arrested and charged with violating the city building ordinance. Not with, you know, murder or manslaughter. They got charged with defying a city ordinance of which they were likely fined and served no real penalty. 1911 would close out with no further explosions. 1911 was, we can kind of say, was about peak time for Prestolite in terms of their growth. The company was on an incredibly huge growth spurt. It's why they were building plants all over the nation. At some points, there were up to half a million Prestolite bottles being circulated at any given time. And this company, as dangerous and certainly as reckless as it seems, was also brilliant in their methods of work. Imagine this. In 1911, the company established the ability, within a 200-mile radius of Indianapolis, to deliver people's bottles to their homes overnight. We're talking Amazon.com levels of service from a company 110 years ago. And what they did was at 11.30 p.m. every night, they would send a a basically a big wagon load of bottles to the post office. And they would stand there and they would collect the orders that had come in. And so they would look at the orders at 11.30 p.m. And these are only for customers that were in like a 200-mile radius of Indianapolis. So we're talking St. Louis, Cincinnati, Dayton, Ohio. Those are kind of the big cities in the day. But they would fill those orders, and those tanks would go out with the post the next morning and be delivered the next day in 1911. That just didn't happen. But these guys were smart, obviously. The company was making millions of dollars a year. At one point, the company was making 5 to $6 million a year, which is the equivalent to about $200 million a year in modern money. And that's why when these plants would explode... These plants that cost eh, twenty-five grand, thirty grand to build or to maintain, it didn't matter. The bottom bottom line, the, the dollars and cents. If you have a company that's making six million dollars a year, and it costs you a couple of fifty thousand dollar plants, what's the big deal? As horrible it is as it is to say, because of the suffering put on the people, what's the big deal? Cincinnati, nineteen twelve. Cincinnati Inquirer 
May the 9th, a fire blamed on a quote-unquote tiny spark that went into one of the acetylene bottles when it was being filled ended up leading to a fire where more than a half a dozen firemen and police officers were injured trying to fight the blaze and keep it from getting any worse. In a kind of, uh, let's call it, terrifying description, we read this, the account of a man named Captain John Conway, 53-year-old man, fireman who was burned very, very badly. This is how the paper described his condition. As the explosion was then caused by the bursting of acetylene gas tanks, the deadly fumes, moist and highly inflammable, had saturated the clothing of the victims so that the task was not an easy one. Captain Conway seemed to have been in the center of the flames, for he was a living column of fire, his face and body entirely covered in blue flames. Conway was rushed to the hospital. He was on the brink of death and in incredible pain for a very long time. They speak of this line. Although suffering excruciating agony from his fearful injuries, Captain Conway was cool and collected and asked the doctors to watch over his men and attend to their injuries first. When he reached the ward, the terrible extent of his burns were revealed. The hair in his head and his eyebrows were burned away, and his eyes themselves looked scorched. From the nape of his neck almost to his hips, the flesh of his back was literally cooked, while the skin of his face, arms, and hands showed deep and painful burns. I could go on, but the reality is it only gets grosser and worse from there. This Cincinnati explosion and fire was interesting in the fact that it did not go the full distance in terms of blowing the roof off the place, and, and it was a lot of bottles were exploding, and things were uh, things were not going so hot inside that building, but thankfully the, the brave work of the firemen were able to... Um, able to keep things in check. October 26, 1912. Auto destroyed in gas tank fire. This is good from Grand Forks Herald in Grand Forks, North Dakota. This talks about a guy that his $1,650 Rambler automobile was completely destroyed when the, the Prestolite tank ignited and blew up. The old tank had been exchanged for a new one only a few minutes before Mr. Fitz, Mr. Fitzmaurice thought he could save some time by merely laying the tank on the floor of the front compartment of the car and closing it in the regular brackets on the running board at another time. The shaking around of the tank evidently loosened the connections to the tube leading to the lamps, and as the lights began to grow dim, Mr. Fitzmaurice stopped the machine and alighted to find the trouble. The tonneau was dark, and he lighted a match to enable him to see. Immediately, there was a dull explosion, and quicker than it takes to tell it, the front of the car was a mass of flames being ignited from the burning stream of gas rushing from the disconnected tank. Nothing could be done to check the flames, unless at the peril of life. Quick work having been done to even save the occupants in the rear seat of the automobile, the machine was completely lost to fire. So not only do you have the plants blowing up, you also have lazy customers not wanting to bolt the tank to the brackets and causing themselves... um, some pretty significant problems. But we're not done in 1912 yet, because now we go to Minneapolis, Minnesota. Explosion destroys building one killed. And of course, it's the same old song and dance. The same story again and again and again. This time it was a night watchman killed when the explosion uh, blew up the plant and a wall of bricks came down on top of him. It was uh, His name was Henry Hone. The explosion shattered windows and houses within a radius of eight blocks. The report was heard for two miles. Damage to the plant is estimated at $40,000. 
The explosion started a fire in the main building, and gas from the 2,000 Prestolite tanks caught when the heat melted the safety plugs. Firemen were unable to put out the blaze, and the flames burned until the gas was exhausted. 2,000 bottles of acetylene. Can you imagine that? I mean, imagine what that would even sound or look like. And, and as we've heard in all these other problems, these other explosions and fires, they just blow up, and, and the stuff's flying everywhere. The bottles are flying around like missiles, the shrapnel going through the air. 2,000 bottles of acetylene. And the firemen did the right thing and just got out of the way and let it burn itself out. But there's good news, because on December 29, 1912, the Minneapolis Star Tribune reports, Prestolite men to rebuild. Officers of company says wrecked plant will be restored. The Prestolite factory, wrecked by an explosion a week ago this morning, will be rebuilt on the same site at Midway, Minnesota, according to Charles Bookwalter, an executive officer of the company. He said that he believed there would be no protest by the authorities, as it was not the intention to operate a hazardous plant. The coroner is not finished in his investigation, but it is expected he will make a report this week. I do find it interesting that the coroner would be conducting the investigations of the plant explosions. I, I think it's an interesting side note. I don't think it works that way anymore. I think it gets turned over to the authorities, but hey. Now we go to December 27th, 1912. Once again, the Star Tribune. Very small blurb, bottom of page 8, which means it is like the last thing that anybody reads in the newspaper. Prestolite accident investigated by state inspector. The Prestolite explosion in the Midway District was not caused by prior, prior boiler explosion. That was determined yesterday afternoon by John B. Colwell, state boiler inspector, who found the boiler in good condition. The cause of the explosion has not yet been ascertained. And sorry to break some news on you here. It never was. There was no ascertainment of that explosion, nor has there ever been any one of these things that was fully solved. There is another story from Indianapolis. We go to the year 1913 now, and at this point in 1913, after the plant collapsed, they moved. Finally, the city, enough was enough. Fisher built a, a, a big plant out in the, the city of Speedway, which he basically founded. And the city of Speedway, Indiana, which is very much a vibrant place out there right now, uh, many of the roads, are, everything that he kind of put into place out there uh, is still there. And in this case, the story from the Indianapolis News, headline of Generator is Cracked from February 13th, 25th, rather, 1913. An explosion in the generator building of the Prestolite Company south of the Speedway today resulted in a large generator being cracked and nearly all the windows on the first floor of the building being broken. A. Van Pelt and E. Carter employees were filling the generator tank with carbide when the explosion occurred. The management of the plant reported that neither man was hurt and said the damage was slight. It just doesn't stop. I mean, it really just doesn't stop. We go to Iowa, 1913. Two are injured at Prestolite gas explosion. This is in Davenport on November 18th, 1913. Then we go to December of 1913. Oh, guess what? The Prestolite plant in Minnesota blew up again. This time it burned completely to the ground again. One of the things you'll know and notice is the fact that these plants did not take a lot of... Um, uh, a lot of work to get back put put back together again when they exploded or burned down. There was not a lot to them other than the, the generator of acetylene and the storage of the tanks. Now, that was just December of 1913, and I skipped over the month of September because I wanted to spend a minute on September of 1913 because September of 13 saw two plant explosions to go along with everything else we've been talking about in 1913, 
But these two plant explosions happened in really interesting places. In fact, one of them was on Long Island, New York. This one happened on September 12th of 1913. The other one happened on September 14th of 1913. And the people on Long Island wanted this plant gone. The people on Long Island, 30 people were injured in this particular explosion. And it was, thankfully, again, didn't kill anybody. But, you know, egregious injuries, people were blinded, people were, you know, very, very badly hurt. And so the citizens of Long Island banded together and said that they wanted nothing to do with this plant and it needed to go. What makes the explosion so interesting in New York, the one, the first one that happened, is the fact that um, the mayor had died on a ship the day before. So the reporting of the explosion was in these little blurbs. It had really no traction because the major story was the death of the mayor who had had a heart attack while on some sort of a transatlantic cruise. So the company got away with one there because nobody really heard about it. The news didn't spread around. The people of Long Island did uh, band together and make a whole lot of noise to try to get uh, a Prestolite plant banned from the place and thrown out. They succeeded in doing that. Unlike the people in Indiana, the folks in New York were able to get the job done. But we're not done yet. 1914, in the Munster Times of Munster, Indiana, this is a great one. A general report was circulated around Hammond yesterday morning that a terrific explosion had occurred at the Prestolite Company on Marble Street, endangering the lives of several workmen. But when questioned by a Times reporter, officials of that company emphatically denied that there had been an explosion. There was no explosion here, said a voice over the wire, and we're still doing business at the same old stand. It is noticeable, though, that most of the manufacturing plants in Hammond make every effort to keep the news of accidents away from the public as much as possible. Of course there was an explosion there. Now they don't even stop the plant. They just keep on going. February, Omaha, Nebraska, 1914. Explosion follows fire in Prestolite plant. January, Iowa, 2014, Prestolite oil separators ablaze, workmen are burned. It's astonishing, right? It's crazy that, that these guys are not only still in business, but they're thriving. In 1912, the electric headlight was, if not perfected, was definitely came, began to come as standard equipment on cars. And what that meant for Prestolite, in very simple terms, it meant that uh, their days were kind of numbered because, yes, folks that already had Prestolite systems would continue to use them. But once you lose the OE business, that kind of supply chain, your your new customer base, will never grow again. So you're going to be playing a kind of uh, managed reduction in your business through the next several years. So what that means in, in reality is that you need to find a new path, a new way to do business, because from 1912 forward, you're going to have less and less customers. And smartly, what they did... They went into the battery business. They bought a battery company named Pumpley Battery Company, and they decided that this was going to be the new way, in which it was, and, of course, the Prestolite brand went on for years and years. That was in 1914. In 1917, they blew up a plant in Ohio, whoopsie-doodle, in downtown Cleveland, and, of course, it kills people. And then in 1918, as a kind of, Parting shot, they blow up another plant, this time in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. The last known casualty 
of the Prestolite Company in terms of their acetylene manufacturing business was a guy named Edward Blodorn. One man was killed and another may die as a result of an explosion in the filling plant of the Prestolite Company on Trowbridge Avenue on Friday. Edward Blodorn of Muskego Avenue was killed in Philip Zingensheim, 56, 32nd Street, and Hilda Place was so severely burned that he may not recover. That was the extent of the story. By 1918, it wasn't even making the front page. And if it didn't make the front page, you got two paragraphs. But as Prestolite moves into the battery business because of their acetylene headlight business is rapidly going away. This is a good move for the business. And thankfully, it's a good move for anybody who lives near a Prestolite plant because they, they became less and less busy doing less and less volume and having less and less potential to explode. In 1913, now I'm kind of doubling back, I mentioned the fact that in 14 they bought a battery company, but in 1913, Carl Fisher and Allison sold their interest in Prestolite to Union Carbide. And it was a staged sale, so they signed the agreement in 14. They really weren't absolved, if you will, of their roles in the business until 1917. So it very much was their maneuver to buy the Pumpley Battery Company and, and merge it in as part of Prestolite. What was so interesting is you look at these newspapers and oftentimes almost on the, on the same page as the explosion stories, there would be an ad for Prestolite. And those ads would eventually transition into ads for batteries. Prestolite did market an acetylene starter for a while, which you basically would open a valve and it would fill the carburetor up with acetylene and whammo, uh, it, it would explode. And that was the starter. That was, this is before the electric start was available. Um, the, the acetylene starter was an accessory that some people took advantage of. Some people being the more, I guess, uh, risk acceptant of those, uh, motorists out there at the time. And by the 1917 era, Allison goes his way and Fisher goes his way. Of course, the Indianapolis Motor Speedway was, is one of Fisher's great accomplishments, but he has two more great accomplishments that have nothing to do with automobiles and everything to do with American culture. Carl Fisher basically built Miami Beach from scratch. And when I say that, I mean physically built it from scratch. He bought some land that was like mangrove swamps and, and coconut trees and hired dredges to come in and dredge the sand up to build up the actual physical land that we now know as Miami Beach. He made incredible amounts of money building the land, selling the lots, and of course owning hotels and property. He also was the guy who established Montauk, New York, this kind of very wealthy, exclusive area, and Montauk was also the doing of Carl Fisher. Interestingly, James Allison would, would become immensely rich. He would maintain his wealth throughout his life. Uh, he was not, as an industrialist, he was a guy that was always making things, building things, seeking contracts, and kind of innovating and engineering. Fisher had bigger eyes, had bigger plans. Eventually, he had to sell the Speedway as he was running low on money, sold it to Eddie Rickenbacker. Rickenbacker ran the track for many, many years. And then his investments went sideways. A hurricane in the late 20s came into Miami, uh, wrecked a lot of his property, put him in a big bind. He ran into problems up in Montauk, New York as well. And Carl Fisher, the maverick, rich guy who was making more money than nearly anybody in the United States for a period of time in the early 1900s, did not die penniless, but for a guy that was raking in millions of dollars a year at his height, was making about the model equivalent of about $100,000 a year when he died, which again is no small income, I'm not saying that, but when we look at the arc of his life, where he peaked and when he peaked, um, it was certainly one heck of a life lived.
you can have your own opinions on Carl Fisher. You can have your own opinions on the acetylene era of Prestolite. I think in reality, what you need to have an opinion on is the way the world worked in the early 1900s. It's a much different outlook than we have today. If there was a company that had factories that blew up multiple times a year across the country, they would not be in business in 2022. They would be sued out of existence or the government would tell them to stop if they were burning people, uh, maiming people, and killing people consistently. Back in 1907, 1908, 1910, 1917, hey, pay the bills and uh, fix your plant and keep on keeping on. Just try not to let it happen again. Totally wild, totally interesting, and to me it's a, it's a neat story that I had no idea about until I ran across a snippet of a, a snippet of a half an idea of what this could have been. And when I started digging into it, I was fascinated. I hope you've enjoyed this look back at the incredible story of Prestolite and their exploding plants from 1907 to 1917. Love making the Dorkamoto podcast. Thank you all very much for listening. We've been having uh, some great stories being told. We have a lot of great stories that are coming up, of course, as well. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you get updated when we release new episodes, and there will be new episodes coming with some frequency. I'm Brian Loans. Thanks for listening. And remember, you can always support the show. Go to dorkomotive.com. You can hit the link there. You can score a T-shirt, any other gear, stickers, all that kind of stuff. There's also a, a link there to just help support the show. Make sure you give us a good rating, and make sure you share the link and tell your pals that you love this podcast and that they should be listening to it as well. I'm Brian Loans. Thanks so much for tuning in to Dorkomotive. We'll be back soon. This episode of the Dorkomotive Podcast is brought to you by Gear Vendors Overdrives. For decades, Gear Vendors has been producing the highest quality, highest horsepower handling overdrives on the market. Easily installed behind a variety of manual and automatic transmissions, a Gear Vendors Overdrive is a transformative piece of driveline technology that takes even the hardest core 3,000 horsepower street machines and turns them into highway cruisers. The drastic increase in drivability and fuel economy are only a couple of the benefits that a Gear Vendors Overdrive unit can offer you and your hot rod. Check them out at GearVendors.com. And remember, GearVendors is the only overdrive that's guaranteed even well racing. Visit GearVendors.com to learn more.